Why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I want to ask you a question. And this is a question, we don't, I don't need hands raised or verbal answers or anything. I just want you to answer it in your own mind for yourself. How many of you in this room feel like you could verbalize the mission statement of your life? How many of you in this room feel like you could verbalize the mission statement of your life? Now, if you don't know what a mission statement is, it's defined as a formal summary of the aims and values of a group or individual. In every leadership class I've ever attended, every leadership book I've ever read, it's recommended before doing anything else that what you do is you set and define your mission. Otherwise, the group or individual going about the work will often wander aimlessly without ever reaching their goals. That's why many people go throughout life and they say, man, I, I, I feel like I am aimless, purposeless. But mission statements can also become problematic when you have one that is not decisive enough. If the scope of the mission becomes too large or moves aside from the original intent, the organization or individual often end up completely separated from what they originally started out to do. And not only that, it can cause strife when two people or two parties who say they have the same mission actually have deeper more important missions actually driving their behavior. They may say that what's up here is an agreed-upon mission, but then underneath there's something else driving behavior. And so then when they begin to separate because those missions are not the same, it causes confusion and division. Folks, I see this in marriage counseling all the time. Two people who are supposedly on the same mission in life, mission in marriage, and yet over time what happens, they end up divorcing. Why? A lot of the time it's because their mission in life and in marriage is different. Now, early on in our church, another pastor pointed out to me that he thought that it was odd that churches all have differing mission statements. I want you to think about that for a second. Rather than align in the common mission and co-mission that God gave us, churches, ourselves included at the start, try to come up with catchy slogans that differentiate ourselves so that we can draw market share. Does that sound like a church? In doing so, our churches act more like businesses and less like God's messianic people. And so our elders met at the time, different elders than now, this was about nine, ten years ago, and we prayed over and studied many portions of Scripture and tried to figure out what on earth the mission of the church is. Primarily, we looked at the section of the gospel according to Matthew, we were going through it at the time, in which Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples to pass on to the church. And this is where we arrived at the mission statement of this church, which is still, you know, a phrase that's supposed to summarize. Our, our mission here at Mission uh, Fellowship is to make disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching, equipping, and sending. We repeat after me, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Rookie mistake. I, I do this with my kids all the time. Repeat after me. Okay, here we go. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. By teaching, equipping, and sending. Our goal as a church is to preach the gospel of Jesus so that men and women and children are converted to faith in Christ, and then to grow them up in sanctification so that we as a church and each of us, each of us as individuals, can be heralds of the gospel to a lost and dying world. If we stray from this mission, we can quickly become irrelevant with regards to what God wants from us 
and find ourselves operating in a different, totally self-interested and weaker mission. It will cause division. The unity that is to be found within the church is only accomplished because of God's Holy Spirit driving us in a common mission connected, first and foremost, to God's mission. The background situation here in 1 Timothy paints a similar picture in that the local church in Ephesus had begun in a way that was fantastic. Paul had planted it. He had sent it on its way. He had given it its mission. But then over time, as he went and planted other churches, it had begun to lose its way. And there were leaders, as we learned last time, leaders and congregants that, as we discussed, uh, had begun to move away from the one true gospel and the order that it promotes within the local church. They'd started to operate on a self-interested mission, thinking that it was just as godly as the gospel-driven mission. And the church had begun to go off the rails at that point, so to speak, here at Ephesus. And that's why Paul said in the section directly prior to our text today that we looked at last week, that these individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, had made a shipwreck of their faith. Now, like a shipwreck, these people were taking the church in a direction that would lead to destruction. It would sink the church, never accomplishing the mission given to it by God. And they had taken the church off the mission that Paul initially had instilled in it, and really that Christ had originally instilled in it. So Paul was sending Timothy as his representative to the local church at Ephesus to provide a corrective direction. And this is in addition to the letter of, uh, to the church that we know as Ephesians that Paul sent, as well as the letter we have before us where Timothy is given his marching orders. And because these three things are sprinkled throughout a pretty good period of time, a couple of years, we know that this was not a drama that was a flash in the pan. It took a while, and it was working its way through this church in Ephesus, and Paul was having to wrestle with it and deal with it. But in order to provide the appropriate corrective, Paul is first needing to reorient the church to the source, God himself. For it is God, not a person or the people within a local church, not even the elders of a local church, that get to set the mission of that church. You see, the mission of God determines the mission of the church. The mission of God determines the mission of the church. If you're taking notes, that's the title for the sermon this morning. The mission of God determines the mission of the church. And it is from this mission that Paul will then move into how the church is to be structured to accomplish this singular mission. You'll be interested to see as we go through, after I present this, that the way leadership is structured, how they hand out benevolence, uh, how they interact with various demographics in their church, all these things originate with the mission of God. And so Paul's corrective suggestions to Timothy to counteract the negative effects of those promoting heresy in the Ephesians church begin here. They begin with the mission statement of God. And that's what we're going to take a look at here in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Now, this passage is difficult to unwrap. It seems as it begins to be focusing on the topic of prayer, but I want to take it apart a bit more in a different manner, and hopefully what you're going to see is Paul's main point more clearly. So let's read the whole thing through here. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through verse 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings 
be made for all people. He's going to use the word all a lot throughout this. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I, Paul, is saying, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, again, you see where if we just jump right into it without really pausing and looking at the whole, we can say, man, he's just going right into the church needs to pray. And we could do that, and that would be, that would be good and fruitful for us. But I want to get there a different way. I want to start, actually, in the middle of this section of the text, and we will come back to verses 1 and 2. Let's take a look first at the text, verses 3 through 6. God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, what we have before us here in these three verses is God's mission. God's mission. We begin here and not in verses 1 and 2 because this is the core of the argument. And as we unwrap it, we will see what he's doing in verses 1 and 2. Paul gave an earlier statement of the Gospels in the second half of the Gospels, excuse me, in the second half of the first chapter, but he speaks far more explicitly here about the gospel. He does throw so through three th- <laughs> this is gonna be a rough morning, guys. Through three things. There we go. First, God's character, then God's desire, and then God's truthful message. So let's begin with what he says about God's character here. You'll see that he notes God as our Savior. Note that, our Savior. So often in many people's view of the gospel message and the activity of the cross and resurrection, people see God the Father desiring nothing but wrath, and it's the Son that desires salvation, as if they're opposed. And guys, this is hopefully obviously false, but it plays its way into some of our thoughts. So here Paul clarifies that God the Father desires that none should perish. He desires salvation. He always has. He always will. He is the Savior. And this is an everlasting, never-changing character uh, character trait of God. The prophet Ezekiel, for example, captures this character trait very simply in Ezekiel 18.23 when he quotes God as saying, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? You see, it was not God who forced our hand or the hand of the adversary to rebel against him. God created the angels and mankind in perfect glory and gave perfect provision to all of them. And yet, in spite of that, his created beings, us as humans, went against his divine and benevolent rule. It would be just for God to have destroyed everything right at the start, all that he created. He would have been just in doing so. And yet, because God is love, he gave those first beings choice to follow him. And when they fell, he walked with them anyway, in a a way where he drew them back to himself. 
You see, our first mother and father chose to rebel, as did uh, uh, portions of the angelic realm. And in doing so, they gave themselves over to the lies and delusion of the enemy that they were the authority of good and evil and not God himself. It was in this delusion that mankind was locked and unable to escape. And so, in order to save the world, God first needed to break through and provide the truth of reality so that the delusion that we are God and that we can make up good and evil on our own, that it would be powerless. And what is that truthful message that God wanted to give us? Well, Paul proclaims that it begins with the fact that there is only one creator, God. There's only one. There's only one creator, God. Not many paths up the mountain. Not many gods. This is where all truth begins. And this is a truth that our world has greatly forgotten. In fact, not only is this a truth, but God is the one who establishes truth. But this is where things also went awry in the Garden of Eden. Rather than admitting there is one God, one ultimate authority of right and wrong, mankind was tempted to believe that we could be God and determine our own truth. We still do that. Scripture, both old and new, detail that this spiraled quickly out of control, and mankind began to create false gods that were made in their own image, our own image, so that we could do as we pleased and dismiss the authority and rule of the one true God. And the demonic realm of darkness was all too pleased to help out and assist backing these false gods with demonic power. But even in spite of this, even in spite of this complete rebellion, God promised that he would find a way to bring salvation and redemption to the very people that rebelled against him. But mankind didn't care. We moved forward at a fast clip, creating more and more false gods, ultimately culminating in the situation at the Tower of Babel in which God dispersed us into various tribes and tongues, ethnicities and nations across the world, all in rebellion against him. And it was from this very doomed polytheistic culture that God eventually called the man named Abram, later to be named Abraham. Out of this polytheistic idol worship of the day, he called Abram to come and worship him above all other so-called gods. This is the core of what it is to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he alone is God. And so God gave him a promise that was the beginning of his covenant with Abraham. And it started right here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. In other words, leave behind the polytheism and rebellion. And he says, I will show you land and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, what's that next word there? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised that in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now pause for a minute with me, because this is key to our text in 1 Timothy chapter 2. When God said all families of the earth shall be blessed, was God promising universal salvation to every human being? He was not. He was not saying that literally every family to ever exist on the face of the planet will enjoy God's blessing and relationship. He was not doing that. He was talking about the scope of his power and salvation as God our Savior that his salvation would affect every nation, tribe, 
and tongue. What God was describing is that from Abraham's lineage would come one who would fulfill that promise from the garden to bring salvation, redeem mankind's relationship with God. And in this saving work, salvation would be made available to every nation, not just Abraham's. And so this statement of all families means that God's desire was that all the nations would be represented in his ultimate plan of salvation. And this is key to understanding our text from 1 Timothy because it's often used erroneously, our text from 1 Timothy, to back two incorrect theologies. The first is universal salvation, where every person goes to heaven regardless of their covenant relationship with the one true God. Because, hey, any God is a path up the mountain to heaven, right? That's the first errant thought. The second errant thought is to back a theological view called Arminianism. To oversimplify it, in this view, God did the work to accomplish salvation, but it's really up to the human to accept it or not. In other words, we're the ones who have the final say in salvation. It discounts the fact that every human is born into original sin and pervasive depravity and cannot choose Christ or accept his salvation unless God first opens our eyes by the work of his Spirit in his sovereign grace. It is all God. We have nothing to do with it. Now, if you're confused, let me simplify it for you. It has always been and will always be the desire of God that his creation would love him and submit to him in his rightful role of God. But in love, he also gave the option to not love him nor obey him, and our first parents chose that option in perfection, with the ability to choose. But at that point, the ability to choose went away. Because of that, we have been born as slaves to that sin, deceiving good and, or deciding good and evil for ourselves, denying God his power and authority in our lives. And while we were in that state, we turned our backs on the very God that made us and gave us life. And yet he still desired that his creation would be saved. So much so that he also provided, as Paul says to Timothy, a singular mediator, his son, Jesus the Christ. Notice that he says, for there is one God, verse 5, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Just as there is only one God, which then requires that all nations submit to and worship that one God, there is also only one mediator who can bring about the work to make it possible for representatives from every nation to turn to him and be saved. Now, various religions, pretty much every religion, has a false mediator. And this was important to point out to the people at Ephesus because this was a city enshrined in the worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana in Roman mythology. Priests and temple prostitutes were to mediate or stand between the worshiper and the deity. Within the church at Ephesus, there are clues that an early form of Gnosticism had also started to creep in. In Gnosticism, there is what is called the Pleroma, in which you had deities of various levels of power that would act as mediators between the one good God and the fallen people. It was a false gospel, and it had started to creep in. And then also, in rigid Phariseeic Judaism, which was also here, Moses was seen as the sole mediator between the Jew and God, but his mediation of the law could not save anyone. And so while we, as Christians, may take what Paul is saying here as simplistic and just because it's the core of our faith, of course there's only one mediator, we say. This was earth-shattering to many in his day and within Ephesus. 
There is only one mediator that could stand between a holy God and an unholy creation and bring about salvation and reconciliation. Only the God-man, Jesus, could be the perfect intermediary to bring about reconciliation. That is why Peter said in his earliest sermon that there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that of Jesus. Paul goes on to say, how did he work out this mediation? There's one God, he had one mediator, Christ Jesus. How did he work out that mediation? Well, he gave himself, he says, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The word ransom means redemption price or means of release. Through the disobedience and rebellion of our first mother and father, again, we are enslaved to rebellion against God. We are not free to make decisions on our own. You may think you are, but you're absolutely not if you're not in Christ. Humanity that's not in Christ is enslaved to delusion. It is no wonder that people are misled easily because they are deluded by nature. No matter how a person tries, aside from Christ, we cannot choose good. We cannot choose righteousness. Without God's salvation, even our most righteous acts and choices are born out of a motivation of selfishness and self-exaltation. I had somebody challenge me one time and say, no, there's tons of good people in the world that do all sorts of good charitable things. Guys, it's always for self-exaltation. It's either so they can feel good about themselves and clamp down on the conscience that says you're a sinner in need of a savior, or it's so they can post on Instagram so everyone else thinks that they're great. <laughs> it's always for self-exaltation. Nothing is truly from a heart of complete selflessness unless it's done in Christ. No one pursues God. Not one. None are righteous. Mankind is bound in the unbreakable chains of rebellion against God, the bonds of wickedness and sin. And you say, Hans, unbreakable? Well, there's only one way it can be broken, and that's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in love and compassion, God sent forth his son to give his life over to the very mankind that had rebelled against him. In dying on the cross for a punishment he did not deserve, Jesus became the sin offering to pay for our sins and meet the price of release so that you and I would be made righteous and free. By the power of the Holy Spirit given to us, we have the capacity now as Christians to begin walking in submission to God and his commands. We have this after effect of our sin that keeps drawing us back, but we are now free to follow Christ. An infinite God, partially housed in the body of a finite man, became the redemption price and means of release for a species caught in the bonds of sin and death. And this, Paul says in his letter to Timothy, is the testimony. The word there is the witness, the martyreo, the witness that God wants declared as ultimate truth to every tribe, every tr tongue across the world. And it has been revealed at the perfect time, Paul says, in God's eternal plan of salvation to be taken to all people. And this, friends, is the gospel. The good news that God's mission is to redeem the earth and the nations within it 
that we destroyed. And it is in this mission and this gospel that then determines Paul's mission, or as I have it written on the board, Paul's commission. Paul's commission. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 7. For this, this testimony, this truth, this gospel, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, we have now discussed Paul's charge or commission multiple times. I think it was in Nick's sermon. I think it was in my sermon. I think it may have been in Tyler's sermon. We've talked about his commission multiple times. And we've done so because he's trying to give backing to his authoritative commands. As we'll see as we go throughout, part of the reason Paul is sending Timothy and writing this letter is because the church that he had planted, that he had loved, was saying, no, dude, you're not our authority anymore. We don't need to listen to you. And so he's trying to get some understanding of, no, I've been commissioned. That's how he started out the letter. He started out the letter with, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, one sent on behalf of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And so he's trying to reestablish this because people in the church had started to sow division and say, don't listen to him anymore, he's not worth it. And so we've talked about the commission a ton because he's trying to reinstill this idea that I've got this commission and that's why I need you to listen to me. Now, I've phrased it this way, this co-mission, because it is great that in our language, it makes it simple. To be given a command by a superior officer to carry out that superior officer's mission is to be given a co-mission, right? English makes it easy. We are on co-mission with God. It's a command a subordinate, to a subordinate to enter into the same mission and assist in accomplishing the mission of the higher authority. You are now on co-mission with them when you've been given a commission. Now, we just finished outlining the mission of God, and this is the mission in which Paul is to stand firm, as we looked at last week, that every nation and really all creation itself would be restored to a place of submitted truth, in which we all glorify and live in unified relationship with the one true God who made us and created us for his pleasure and saved us through his one true mediator. That's the point. Notice that I haven't talked about you at all in describing the mission of God. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and his glory, God and his kingship, God and his redemption. The use of the word all throughout this text in front of us is not for the purpose of stating the literal quantity to be saved, but instead to emphasize the completion and all-encompassing nature of what God will accomplish, that he will redeem a world that was completely and totally in rebellion against him in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he will bring every nation, tribe, and tongue into submission to his benevolent reign. It's similar to Philippians where Paul says every knee will bow. It's about him, not about us. And this has been the case throughout Scripture. You heard the earlier reading from Psalms and Ephesians. Look again at what we heard from Psalm 96 there. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is Yahweh, the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Sounds similar to what God said to Abraham, doesn't it? O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Do you see, dear church, why I get nervous when I hear people frame the gospel in a manner that makes its motivation and goal getting you or me or any human to heaven? Let me ask that again. Do you see, dear church, why I get nervous when I hear people frame the gospel in a manner that makes its sole motivation and goal getting you or me or any human to heaven? That is a secondary part of the gospel. Now, it's a part of God's plan to bring us into his presence, yes, but it is so much bigger and more glorious than that. I don't want to put that at a point where it's not valuable. Please hear me. But I want us to reframe our focus. Because, man, we are selfish and self-focused. Amen? It's about the majestic name of Jesus being given all honor and glory and power across every language and every tribe and every people. It is so that every knee will bow to his benevolent reign. It is so the created world that he formed from his own loving words will finally and forever proclaim his rightful position as God and King. Our inclusion in that redemptive story is a byproduct of his gracious nature. It is not the main point. And if you're frustrated right now, if you think, well, that's not the gospel, then you believe in a gospel that is you-centric, and it's not the gospel. And Paul understands this. He noted earlier in the letter to Timothy that the only reason he was saved, although he was formerly in rebellion against God, was so that God could use him to show his amazing benevolence and mercy and grace. That through Paul, God could proclaim his testimony. His good news of redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so Paul now says in verse 7, For this, to witness to the saving work of God through Jesus, for this I was appointed, commissioned by God as a preacher, an apostolic emissary, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's Paul's mission. God gave Paul a specific co-mission. Not aside from what God's mission was, but within it. Would you turn with me to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Acts 9, 10 through 19. And this is the story of where Paul was first really commissioned. He was brought to his knees on the road to Damascus, but this is where we get kind of a mission statement as to what God was using him for. So take a look at Acts 9, verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at, that ho at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Remember that Paul was also named Saul. It says, For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his 
hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Because remember, Paul was going and killing Christians. But the Lord said to him, go, notice this, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may re uh, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the symbolism of regain your sight. You're going to understand. You're no longer going to be deluded. You're not going to be blinded. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Paul had been chosen and given a task that he would be the core driver of God's mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement to the Gentile nations. Go back to 1 Timothy. Take a look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 7. For this, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The apostles had been commissioned for Judea and Samaria. We saw that in Acts. And then the ends of the earth. Paul was commissioned that he would be, again, a chosen instrument of God's to carry God's name before Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Now hold on to those three categories for when we go back to 1 Timothy. Gentiles, kings, and Israel. All people. This is who he's going to be telling the church they need to be praying for. So Paul has been commissioned with a great responsibility to take the gospel to the Gentile nations, push the ball forward on God's mission to redeem even the Gentile nations. And this is why he would then write to the Ephesian church to which he has also sent Timothy and tell them exactly what was read to us before. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Okay, if anybody, any of you watch Loki, raise your hand. This is the divine timeline. <laughs> there is no other, okay? This is the plan, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. Notice who he's focused on there, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose. The eternal purpose, it's always been God's mission that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Amen? Amen? It has always been God's mission since the opening pages of Scripture and beyond that to redeem his creation for his glory and its good. And now he's using Paul to co-mission with him in the same purpose. But there is one more piece that you may have noticed that I did not point out in verse 7 in 1 Timothy 2. Let's go back and look there. He says in the middle of it, this parenthetical statement, I am telling the truth. I am not lying. You can almost see him pounding the pulpit, right? Why would he say this? Well, remember that part of the reason, as I said earlier, that he's sending Timothy is that even though Paul planted the church and ministered out of his very life to the church, there arose those in the church who had previously followed him and loved him, but are now trying to remove him, dismiss him, and accuse him. 
That was the goal of the others led by Hymenaeus and Alexander in the teaching from last week. They were trying to discredit Paul by saying he doesn't have the authority to lead us. This very same thing happened in Corinth as well as you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so Paul is placing special emphasis on this point that he has been given this commission and heavy responsibility, and in essence, he's begging Timothy to believe him and not follow the errant teaching of these other people. He's begging because he needs Timothy and even the very people that are dismissing or questioning his authority to understand the weighty responsibility he has been given so that they might grant him the authority in their lives to provide some strong correctives. This is going to play into his discussion on the roles of men and women next week. The idea that authority and responsibility go together. You need authority given to you so that you can bear a responsibility. And Paul's begging for them to give him that authority in their lives. Now, as we'll see next week, Paul is going to lay down some heavy corrections that many in his day, and especially in our day, will not like. Just so you know, next week I am buying a flak jacket for when I have to teach through the rest of 1 Timothy 2. He realized that if he's not given authority by the people he's leading, then he will not be able to fulfill the responsibility given to him by God to lead the churches that he has planted in accomplishing the mission of God. In essence, he's saying, Timothy, you have to believe me, that God placed this responsibility on me, whether I wanted it or not, and I need you to follow me as I carry out the mission that God has delivered to me. God's mission determined Paul's co-mission. And now Paul was handing Timothy a co-mission so that he could bring course correction to the shipwreck that was the local church of Ephesus so that they could get back underway contributing to the mission of God. And in so doing, the mission of God determined not only the co-mission of Paul, but it also determined the mission of the church. The mission of the church. And this is where we get back to verses 1 and 2. We come now back to our opening lines in this text in the first letter to Timothy that seem as though Paul wants to focus on the topic and activity of prayer. But Paul is simply using prayer as a medium by which he's pointing to the mission of the church. He's using prayer as a means to say, this is what I need you guys to refocus on. You see, if God's mission begins and ends with salvation for the nations through proclaiming and heralding and preaching and teaching the gospel truth of Jesus' redemptive work to restore worship to the one true king, God, then Paul's arguing, needs to be at the center of the minds of the church. And the mission of God needs to be at the center of the minds and hearts of the Ephesian church. In other words, this is of first importance. It is of the highest priority that you refocus to God's mission. You see, due to the erroneous teaching and leadership of some of these other folks like Hymenaeus and Alexander, the people were wound up in conspiracy theories and false doctrine and errant gospels that's outlined in the first few verses. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you got to get their eyes refocused. Otherwise, any changes you make, any correctives you bring, any discipline you bring, it will fall flat. Because as we talked about last week in the topic of discipline, if a person isn't knowing that their discipline is for the benefit of themselves, the benefit of the gospel witness of that church, then they won't want to accept it. But if they're on the same page, then they will accept the discipline. 
Get their eyes refocused, he's saying. The church will not unite in common mission unless their eyes are focused on the same thing. Okay, I want everybody right now to do me a favor. Pick something in this room and look at it. Go ahead. Now imagine if you were to start walking towards that thing you're looking at. How many people would you bump into and have conflict with? Almost everybody. Now, everybody, look at that sign of the cross. And if you were to start walking, guess what? You'd probably all get there together, unified, and in the same timing. Now, not because I'm narcissistic, but because I'm preaching. Look at me. (laughs) We have to have the same mission. What's the best way to be united? To have the same mission by the same power of the Holy Spirit. And what's the best way to get a person or a church's heart reoriented to God and his mission? It's prayer. This is just a general idea. What's the best way to get somebody reoriented to God's will? It's prayer. First of all, then, before you do anything else, Paul says, I need you to get them to pray. He comes off this very strong wording about the error of others. And so he says, I urge, and the word there in the Greek is, I plead with you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Who? For kings, so that we can lead a quiet life doing what the church is meant to do, to show ourselves to be the pillar and buttress of truth, to show ourselves to be the household of God among a pagan people, to show ourselves to be the people saved by the gospel of Christ. Paul is praying for the very people, all people, to whom he was sent to proclaim the gospel, for Gentiles, for kings, for Israel. He's saying, guys, get your eyes focused on our goal. It is not for you to feel like you belong. It is not for you to gain more cognitive understanding and academic understanding of what the Bible says. It is not so that the gospel can stop with you as if the whole mission of God was to save you in your perfect personhood. It is so that you can be a preacher of the gospel. Brother, sister, you are saved so that you can be a preacher of the gospel. Because that's God's mission. That's Paul's mission. That's the church's mission. And therefore, it is the Christian's mission. Paul wanted the church to pray so that their hearts would be turned away from all the errant and superfluous false missions and purposes of the church so they could focus on the one true and only purpose of the church to proclaim and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. To proclaim that there is one God, one authority, and one king, and that he has pronounced one truth. That when mankind dismissed that truth and authority, he pursued us through the mediating work of his son, through Jesus' death and resurrection, to show God's unimaginable love for his creation. For God so loved that creation that he wasn't willing to let it go into oblivion. And so he came in the flesh in the form of his son to pay the price for mankind's rebellion and sin so that the bonds of our wickedness and rebellious nature might be broken and we might be able to turn to him and become his own by his prompting. Friend, could the Lord be reaching out to you today and right now in this sermon purposefully, purposefully be breaking the bonds of delusion 
that you have been operating under? Is he reaching out to you right now and saying, it's time for you to reorient yourself to the truth, which is God's truth and God's mission? Are you realizing right now that there is only one true God worthy of your worship and you will stand before him one day in judgment? If that's you and you want to give your life over to Christ, I would love to pray with you after this. When we get done today, come up and talk to me and I will talk with you about what it is to be a disciple and I will pray with you and we will begin a walk together in commission towards the gospel being preached to every nation under heaven. God's mission determined Paul's mission, and this mission determined the mission of the very churches that he planted, that in gathering together to worship the one true God, in being sent out to preach about the one true mediator, we are declaring and protecting the truth of God. And that is why Paul can call the local church in chapter 3 a pillar and buttress of the truth, the household of God. Our mission on this planet individually is to be part of the mission of the church in which we are members. As that local church takes part in God's mission to protect and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ locally and globally. Now you might say, Hans, that's maybe your mission as the pastor. That's not my mission. I have other missions. Then you're going to go off course. To make disciples of Jesus Christ by baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them to observe all that God has commanded them, to equip them with the gospel and the mission of the church, and then to send those people out that you have equipped into the, their daily lives as ambassadors of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Brother, sister, is this your mission? Or is your life overwhelmed with other missions? And friends, I have to tell you, those missions you might have may not be innately bad aims and values. They may not be evil, but they're not the mission of God. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is my mission in submission, notice our English word again, submission, to this one overarching mission of God? The mission of every local church and therefore of every church member is the same to declare the gospel work of the one true God through his one true mediator, Jesus Christ. It is based off of this mission that the worship, structure, and activity of the local church is to be determined. And it is based off of this mission that Paul will make all the correctives outlined later in this letter. Friends, it is so easy for any individual or group to stray off course in their mission how much more possible is it when you have the full force of the world and the adversary of God leaning on the church in a way that will push them off course? You have to fight. You have to wage the good warfare to stay focused on the mission of Christ. And this is why, as elders, we fight so hard to keep this church focused on its sole mission. In our time as a church, we have received many suggestions that we should do more events, that we should do more outreach, that we should have more social connection groups outside of community groups or discipleship groups. But friends, this is a church. It is not a social club. It is not a business. It is not a social services organization. 
We are not a philanthropic organization only. We are not a social justice organization only. And we are not a political lobbyist group. All that we do and all that we take on is filtered through the mission God has given us. And if something is found to not accomplish that mission, we eventually, through the grace of God and his providence, hopefully will discard it. It may have merit. It may be good. It may not be innately evil. But if it distracts our time, energy, or talents from the biblical gospel and truth, it is our job to remove it from focus. Let me give you an example that came up in the car ride here today. My kids who, yes, they're sinners, but man, they're amazingly wise people for their age. We were celebrating how the kids did an amazing job in doing their Bible memorization, bringing Bibles to class, all that fun stuff, where they get to add up to a place where the elders have taken some money and stashed it away in the budget so that we can send money to Burkina and say, you know what, Marcel, these kids love you so much that they did all this work to serve Jesus so that another church can be roofed in Burkina and the gospel can continue to go out to an unreached people group. That's pretty amazing, right? So the kids said to me today, yeah, Dad, it's really cool, but it's also really sad. I said, why is it sad, guys? This is huge. They said, well, because as soon as we took away the fact that tickets went for toys, most of the kids stopped memorizing Scripture and bringing their Bibles. And it's a far lower number of kids that actually do what they need to do now in order to accomplish getting a roof on a church. I wonder what the kids were doing those things for. What was their mission before? It was to get toys. That's the child version of the adult. I got saved, so I get to go to the good place when I die. It's not for the glory of Jesus. It breaks my heart. And we as parents should be really convicted. What are we teaching our children? is the mission of the Christian. This singular focus is what pushes us to hold the opinions we do on how and why we gather, how we collectively worship when we gather, how we are structured and led as a congregation and what we take on. Friends, I want to ask you, what is your part in helping that mission play out here at Mission Fellowship? My hope is that it continues in this church, no matter who's at the forefront, whether it's me or any of the other elders. My hope is that mission fellowship has a common goal, regardless of who its elders are, because we have the same God. What is your part in helping that mission play out? And are you participating in it, or are you making it more difficult? Have you made the mission of God to spread the gospel your mission? Or do you still have secondary missions that are behind why you are here? Maybe they're relational. This is where my friend group is. Maybe they're academic. I just love knowing detailed stuff about the Bible. That's why I come here. Maybe it's spiritual reasons. I just feel fed. 
These are secondary missions that are behind why we're here. And they're driven by a mission of self rather than God's mission to declare his gospel among the nations, to declare his gospel in Salem and Kaiser. If your mission does not align with the mission of the church, friends, you will find yourself very frustrated and eventually divided. But if we unite behind the common vision of God's mission, you will be amazed and astounded at what we can suffer and endure with one another. This week, I want to challenge you to pray for the conversion of people in your life, people in Salem, people in our country, and across the world, especially because we have a very solid work going on there in Burkina Faso. And I want you to pray so that you can see what happens to your heart, that maybe your mission will adjust to be God's mission. And in your personal life, I want you to ask, where does God's mission fit in? Is it submitted to my mission? Or is my mission in life submitted to him? Let me explain what I mean. If you work all day and you think, man, I don't have time to spread the gospel, is your mission to make money and succeed, or is it to support your family as missionaries in a lost world? When you go to do family devotions, is it because, well, our pastors asked us about it and I should probably do it because I don't want to have to say I didn't do it last time and I'm going to check the box? Or are you doing it to raise up disciples for the purpose of spreading the gospel? When you pray before meals, is that just something you've always done and it's what good Americans do? Or is it because you want to put out in your household an understanding that there is one God, one provider, one creator, and every morsel of food that comes to us is because of his benevolence? God's mission should be interwoven with every part of our lives. If you're a stay-at-home mom, what is your mission? Is it to raise successful model citizens or is it to raise disciples of Jesus Christ that will wage warfare on behalf of God? In your neighborhoods, are your friendships, are your family relationships, are they there because they make you feel good? Or are they there because these are people that God loves and he wants to use you as a tool to preach the gospel to them? Is your mission to declare the gospel? And do you realize that you are not the end goal of the gospel, but that you have been given a commission to take it beyond your own mind and heart to the lost around you? Dear friend, what is your mission? Is it the mission given to you by God, or is it something else? Is it evangelism and declaring truth to a world that is lost and deluded? I pray that it is, because... Being on co-mission with God is one of the ways God will unify this church and encourage us that we are his. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is proclaiming to our hearts this morning.